Kia ora and welcome. I'm Boris Lamont and this is the New Zealand Wine Podcast. Thanks for joining us for part one of our chat with John Hancock, who has been involved in the New Zealand wine industry for more than 35 years and has had significant influence in different uh, wineries and is currently uh, a founding winemaker and an owner of Trinity Hill in the Hawke's Bay of New Zealand. John originally hails from Australia and has worked there and around the world and has a really great story to tell. So let's go have a chat with John. Uh, so welcome, John. Thanks for coming along. Hey, good to be here. <laughs> yeah. um, take two on this. Um, so your, your story obviously started a little while back. Yeah, I, I uh, was brought up on a sheep farm in South Australia, country South Australia, southeast part, uh, which... Uh, in those days was probably Australia's, aside from the Barossa Valley, I guess, Australia's most famous winemaking region, right. the area called Coonawarra. Yep, yep. So it's now part of a larger uh, sub-region of Australia, now they call the Limestone Coast. Right, and that's heading south-east away from Adelaide south rather east than of Adelaide, yeah, uh, Barossa's heading more north. Yeah, north, northwest slightly. North-west, yeah, yep. The Barossa's only an hour or so out of, out of Adelaide. Yep. Um, Coonawarra's four and a half hours Okay, drive. all right, so a bit further down. Sort yep. of part way. Well, I suppose the main, the closest bigger town is a place called Mount Gambier. Okay. Uh, which is sort of halfway between Adelaide and Melbourne. Yep, yep. Is that on the main, Australia. on that main highway? Yeah, the, yes. the Prince's Highway. Yes, yeah. Or yeah. State Highway 1, basically. Yeah, mm. yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, so um, um, I sort of got interested in wine by default, really, a family of in those days, didn't drink wine. Um, the wine wasn't a big part of the culture in Australia at that time. No. It was just starting to happen because in the 1950s, all that immigration from Europe, uh, Italians, Greeks mm. and so on, were really brought wine drinking culture, particularly table wine drinking culture, to, uh, to Australia yes. uh, to become much more common. Yeah. yeah. Fortified wines were big back then, and uh, I guess my folks would have had a flag and a... Sherry, sherry or something, or something. around yeah. the place, yeah. or yeah. port or something, yeah. Yeah. but uh, didn't drink uh, wine really at all. Mm. That came later. Mm. Uh, so I sort of um, got into it because we, we living out of town on a farm, uh, we used to get sent a pack of books every month by the South Australian State Library, and it just so happened that one month, uh, one of the books that I got given was a uh, was a book on home winemaking. Right, okay. How old were you then? I was 12. Right, okay. Well, that's quite appropriate. <laughs> well, I'm not quite sure how they determined what books. I mean, normally it was Biggles or, you know, yeah. something like that, Tintin yeah. or something like that. But to get a book on home winemaking... Um, well, it proved to be quite insightful. Of them, well, it? it was, you know. It sort of got me quite intrigued. I started making a little bit of wine from uh, weird uh, fruit trees on the on the farm, mm-hmm. you know, just for, just for our own use. But... Mm. Uh, a mulberry tree, as most most farmhouses had a mulberry tree. So mulberries, as it turned out, make great wine. I think you know, really purple, rich, beautiful. So I sort of started, followed the recipe, done, did what you have to do yep. from the recipe, and yep. and made this brew of this beautiful purple, uh, bubbling. Uh, wine and I sort of got quite intrigued with this whole fermentation process and I I do actually remember also my father making homebrew beer at that particular time oh, as okay. well so yep. that sort of coincided yes. yeah. and uh, got me interested in the whole fermentation process so and then to finish high school I went away to boarding school in Adelaide and my chemistry teacher 
uh, made mead that's uh, wine from honey. Mm-hmm. So he had these big glass carboys bubbling away in the in the lab, and I got fascinated with the whole fermentation process. And then, using my learnt skill from uh, my home wine making book, I then got my mates in my dormitory to take all the apples off the dining tables in the evenings, okay. and we would make cider in our dormitory. Yeah, nice. Nice. Which, you know, was quite good because, uh, you know, it was a semi-commercial operation. We could sell the, sell the results to our mates and uh, made, a bit of, made a bit of money so we could, you know, drink beer on Saturday nights instead of yeah. drinking cider. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the teachers weren't buying at that stage. No, teachers, I don't know, they sort of either ignored it or they didn't know what was going on. But yeah. we never had, any, never had any problems with the teachers. <laughs> I guess they thought we weren't doing too much harm. No, no, that's right. Yeah, bit of initiative. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And um, because I was brought up on a farm, I had sort of always intended to be involved in, in agriculture somehow, um, whether I went back to the farm, which was unlikely because it was a relatively small farm and didn't really, you know, it wasn't really going to work. So um, I went to a tertiary institution called Roosevelt Agricultural College in those days. It's actually now part of Adelaide University, but in those days it was a standalone, a little bit like Lincoln, totally concentrated on agriculture. Uh, so I started off, did a couple of years of, of ag science and then swapped over to winemaking. They had a winemaking, well, it was a diploma course in those days. Okay. And is that in, a, in, in the same region we're talking, Roseworthy? Yeah, that's at Roseworthy, which is sort of about 40 miles sort of uh, west of Adelaide, okay. I guess, sort of mm-hmm. on the fringe of the, or northwest, on the fringe of the Barossa Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had, I mean, it was an operational farm, teaching farm, uh, had uh, you know, things like sheep breeding, kind of beca- it was quite a famous uh, sheep breeding place and also um, uh, cereal crop growing. So where that was was a large cereal growing area. It was a, I think it was a 7,000 acre farm, so, you know, it was quite sizable. Mm. Um, but, of course, that sort of was just where you learnt the practical side of, of doing uh, agriculture. So, you know, the first year there we learned how to, you know, drive tractors and ride horses and make hay and mix, feed mix and all that sort of yeah. stuff. So it was a very practical practical thing and pretty much the same with the winemaking course when I swapped over to that. So it was a two-year diploma course then. It's now a three-year um, a Bachelor of Science, Applied Science or something, so it's changed quite a bit. But to, to actually start it, we had to do uh, at least two years of ag science before you could do the winemaking or have a degree in an appropriate subject before you could do it. So in the end, I did four years uh, at Roseworthy, two of which was agriculture and two of winemaking. Okay, yeah. yeah. But so that would have been early days We're talking for... in the early 1970s, 1970. Yeah. 71, 72, 73 for me, so four years. So, and quite early for being able to do any learning Well, a- in those days, um, uh, Roseworthy was the only place in the Southern Hemisphere that you could actually study winemaking. Okay. So it was early days of the wine, of the sort of regrowth, I guess, of uh, the wine industry in, in the Southern Hemisphere, <coughs> excuse me, but particularly Australia. Hmm. So hmm. if you wanted to study winemaking... You had to go to Roseworthy, okay. and it was pretty limited, 20 students every second year. So they ran it in two-year blocks, um, not concurrently. So they were separate. You did a two-year block, and then the next lot of students came along and did their two years. Mm. So, you know, there was only 20 graduates, or maximum of 20 graduates, every, every uh, second year. So those, so those graduates in very high demand. Uh, so, you know, we all got great jobs. 
Yeah, because because it coincided with the the growth of the of the wine industry. Absolutely, itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and demand yeah. for people. and the people who were sort of in charge of the wine companies in those days, or particularly the the technical side of it, were all graduates of of Roseworthy as well. Okay, right. So, and the other one interesting thing uh, I haven't really talked about very much, but we also had the first female. Uh, student at Roseworthy, and Roseworthy was actually almost like a it was like another a, like a college. Like uh, we all lived on campus, yep. And it was treated very much like a like a um, a high school, you know, okay. like a boarding yep. school. Like a boarding school, yep. Mm. Yeah. So in our first year, we couldn't have we weren't allowed to have a car on campus, for right. example. Yeah. So because we we uh, well not me but a lot of the guys had cars which they left in the local town nearby, yeah. so <laughs> we could get out and about. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's good, and um, you know, having the first the first female was quite a big deal. Mm. The first so female student, full stop, at the, at full stop mm. at the college at all, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so she uh, um, was the first graduate, mm. a female graduate uh, winemaker. Oh, and she she went and did winemaking. Yeah, she, as, she as was. Well. She yeah. did winemaking. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh wow. Yeah, Pam Pam Dunsford, quite a well known. A winemaker and very groundbreaking, of course. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Especially we think, you know, with the, the way we're talking about uh, you know, trying to get women more involved with mm. various industries, including mm. the wine industry. There is actually quite a lot of females involved mm. in the wine industry mm. and always have been. Mm. Um, but she was the first graduate. Right, okay. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, fascinating. Mm. Uh, anyway, so, uh, so when I finished, I hadn't organised a job uh, until pretty much I'd graduated, and most of the guys that were in my year were uh, sponsored by other winemaking companies, so they already had jobs organised, and I didn't. And luckily, uh, that because I got the best job out of what everybody got um, working for a company called Leo Burings, who who were in those days Australia's leading white wine producing company mm-hmm. and basically white wine of the day just like Sauvignon Blanc is here in New Zealand now, um, was Riesling. Yeah, yeah. So and whereabouts were they? Um, they had, well, they had vineyards in the Barossa Valley, Eden Valley and Clare mm-hmm. uh, for Leo Burings. The Leo Burings were owned by Lindemans in the part of Lindemans organisation, which was a much bigger winery. And they also had uh, vineyards in Coonawarra and the Hunter Valley and places like that. Okay. Mm. But uh, uh, Leo Buring's fame really came from Eden Valley and Clare Valley Rieslings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And I worked with a guy called John Vickery, who's the winemaker's winemaker, I guess. Uh, they did a poll a couple of years ago in one of the one of the wine magazines in Australia, and he was voted as the most influential winemaker by his peers, basically. Oh, okay. Wow. So I was lucky enough to be able to, to uh, work with him um, just picked up a few, but it was really more about the wines that he'd made in the past as much as anything else. A fascinating guy. Yeah. And he's sort of just retired now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so he's, um, he, he, he would have seen quite a bit of change then through the, oh, absolutely. <laughs> through the wine industry in Australia. Absolutely. Mm. And, oh, mm. God, we all have. I, um, yes. I, uh, I came to New Zealand to work in 1979 because I wanted to work for a small company to get some experience with working in small companies because I, I always wanted to have, or in the back of my mind, was always wanting to have my own winery. Um, so to get, I need to get some experience in small companies. So then I, I worked, uh, well, eventually worked. I, got, I applied for a job that was advertised in the Australian magazine from Delegates Wines. Okay. 
It's, so that was so that was the 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 prime reason you thought okay here's an opportunity for me to get involved in a yeah. in a, a small in a small <clears throat> and it also a chance you know I'd not been out outside of Australia at that stage yeah yeah so it was a chance to travel a little bit as well mm-hmm. and it was a relatively short term contract an eighty like a uh, a two vintage contract right okay originally yeah um, but you know I stayed on delegates for four years. Where were they? Where was they that? were based in Henderson. In Henderson. In those yeah. days. Yeah, um, just outside of Auckland. Yeah, West Auckland. Mm. And most of the grapes came from Gisborne. So that was, that was the way the industry operated in New Zealand at mm. that time. Mm. Uh, the, most of the wineries were Auckland-based. The big wineries were Auckland-based as well. And they, they took a lot of fruit out of, out of Gisborne. Hawke's Bay a little bit. And Marlborough was just sort of starting to come on and stream. Mm-hmm. So when, when, when are we talking now? When are we sort that of was 1979, and 79, yeah. I did my first harvest uh, in the Barossa Valley at Yolumba Wines in 1972. So this is my 44th, 45th year, 40, 45th year yeah. uh, involved in the wine industry. Yeah, yeah. It's, been a long, it's been a long haul. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the delegates of, uh, you know, it was a, I'd come from a big, winery in Australia called Berry. That was my, my pre- the job that I had for two years before I came to New Zealand. A uh, big cooperative up in the Riverland, uh, making a lot of bulk style wine. Still mm-hmm. made some pretty good quality wine, but it was basically a bulk wine producing uh, winery. Mm. Crushing more than the whole of New Zealand's crush put together at that stage, right. just in one facility with two winemakers. Gosh, wow. So it was, uh, uh, but I got bored there actually. To be honest, even even though um, it was a big winery, we only had two winemakers. There was a lot to do. It was you know same same big bulk volume, and I've you know it wasn't what inspired me. No, you know sort no. of. I, one of the things that happened when I was a bit younger too, and it may well have been a book that came from the South Australian Library again. <laughs> there was a book called Classic Wines of Australia, written by a guy called Max Lake who was actually a surgeon in, in Sydney. But he, and this book, you know, had beautiful photos and the, the, the big old names that we'd known, Lindemann, Sepultz, Wins and so on, were all in there. Uh, Tyrrells and all these sort of very well-known Australian wineries at that time as well. And that was sort of in, very inspirational to me as well. And, and then when I uh, came to New Zealand, I got involved in wine judging fairly Fairly early on when I arrived in New Zealand, I judged at the Easter, Royal Easter show one year. I think it must have been 1980. Maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah, it would have been 1980. Um, and I actually judged with Max Lake. Uh, he was on my panel okay. uh, and judging. So that was, that was great. He was yeah. a really interesting, really yeah. interesting man. And, just, and been quite influential in, in my own thinking about things as well. So right. that was really, that's, you know, nice things happen along the way. Yeah, yeah, no. It's, it, it, and that, that would have been still really early for New Zealand wine industry. Yeah, definitely was. Yeah. And if I go back to what a point I was going to make, if I got involved in 1972, mm. the, the first vineyards in Marlborough weren't planted until 1973. Wow. So I've been involved in the industry for longer than vineyards have been planted in yeah. Marlborough. <laughs> and, and you see uh, how influential Marlborough yes. has become, uh, not just to the, new, the whole New Zealand industry, but worldwide. Yeah, well, and, and uh, if, if you fly in there now, you, you go over... You know, yeah, it's almost a monoculture yeah. of grapes now from, I suppose, that mm. you know, go back into pre-1973, mm. it was probably almost a monoculture with regard to sheep. Mm. Mm. But they've got a lot of fruit and stuff grown there as well. Yes. But uh, these days, I don't know that there's that much fruit grown there anymore. It's pretty much all, all grapes. Mm. Mm. 
Mm. Fascinating. So, so um, yeah, so Delegates was a really good stepping stone for me. We, uh, we, the 1979, my first harvest year, was a bit of a shocker. It, was, it rained the whole time. It was terrible. <laughs> but we managed to pick up uh, some really good awards, golds and so on, in the, in the uh, air news, or what was, the, I think it was, was the um, Tourist Hotel Corporation oh, wine show in those days, pre-Air <laughs> New Zealand Wine Awards. Yeah. Um, so uh, delegates had never won a gold medal before, so that was the first gold medal they'd won. So that sort of got um, uh, brought me, I suppose, as the winemaker, to the attention of all the local press and so on. In those yeah. days, wine press was was quite important because it was very early days of wine in New Zealand. And how long had delegates been running at that stage? Well, I think they started in the nineteen fifties. Oh, okay, so some time. So it'd be twenty mm. more than twenty years. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. And uh, Jim Delegate's father. Uh, started that, and then Jim was in a lot of uh, vision, a very visionary guy. In fact, to even go to Australia to get a winemaker, because when I came back to New, uh, to, from when I came back from well, to New Zealand from Australia, uh, working with Jim, I was the only qualified winemaker in New Zealand at mm. that time. There'd mm. been a couple, sort of a few guys from Davis in California and so on. Okay, but at that particular time, I was the only sort of practicing qualified winemaker. There's two other guys who were Rosemary graduates here. There was Alex Corbin and Bob oh. Napstein mm-hmm. who both dead now. Right. right. Um, but you know they so were Corbin Corbin's yeah, wines. Al- yeah. 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 And well Bob Napstein worked for McWilliams New Zealand. McWilliams. Yep. And uh, Alex obviously worked for Corbin's. Mm. Mm. Yeah so so they were the only two and they weren't really making wine in those days. Oh no? No, no, they'd sort of been, you know, they were almost at retirement stage and they were sort of being more, um, probably doing more of the sort of thing that I'm doing now, right. actually, to yeah. be honest, you yeah. know, yeah. you pass things on to the next generation. Yeah, yeah, okay, mm. yeah. So I worked for Delegates for, for, for uh, four vintages, three, for three years, and one of the things that happened, um, Jim was great about... Um, having access for his winemaking team for for imported wines. So he he would buy quite a lot of, of wines from oh, right, uh, that yep. week. So we could look at it and see what's happening overseas and all the rest of mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And uh, just one step back from that, the, I came in 1979, so I did the 1979 harvest uh, on my own. I needed someone to help me in the laboratory to do work for me. So one of the guys that I went to school with... Uh, is uh, Larry McKenna. And right. Larry McKenna, now very famously New Zealand's Mr. Pino. Mm. Um, but in those days, he and I were just mates at school, at school together. So I was a boarder at Scotch College in Adelaide. He was a day boy. Oh, so we're not talking Rosary, you're talking before No, pre-Rosary yeah. days right. while, I was okay. at, while I was at school. And his father was a surgeon in Adelaide. And he had a great love for McLaren Vale red wines. So I'd go and stay at their place a lot. Uh, on weekends and stuff, mm. and uh, every Sunday afternoon, Dr. McKenna would pull out the barbecue, chuck on a lovely fillet steak, and bring out the McLaren Vale Red. So, oh, as, nice. you know, sort of 16, 17-year-olds, yeah. we were sort of introduced to to wine mm. uh, by Larry's father, really. Mm. Mm. And then Larry went off and, and um, got a lab technician certificate and then went to Roseworthy and actually did agricultural science at Roseworthy. Not winemaking, so you know, I knew that he had this the, the lab qualification. So I said, to him, why, don't, "Why don't you come?" I was back in Adelaide 
for Christmas at the, uh, the end of 1979, said, why don't you come and help me in New Zealand? Because his, his partner, his girlfriend, was a Kiwi. Okay. Mm. So all these things happened, and he came back and worked with me at, uh, at Delegates, and we learnt a lot about imported wines together at Delegates. So he had been exposed to you know, some of the great Pinot Noirs of the world at that particular stage. He had already been. Yeah. He, he was really at Delegates yeah. with, you know, with Jim... Um, buying. Oh, okay. Um, you both. Yeah, you went. So uh, Jim, we Jim bought them the in same, and, at the same time, and we yeah. tasted those wines together, and you know, and got a, a real love for just for the classic that, wines of the world. Had you well, when you'd been in Australia um, prior to that, had you had was there was there a lot of imported wine? Was there interestingly much enough, to it? no, there wasn't. But you know, things like Beefsteak and Burgundy Club, you did get access to some of those things. In fact, the Berry Beefsteak and Burgundy Club was the f- place where I t- first tasted New Zealand wine oh, okay. uh, back probably in 1978. Mm-hmm. Uh, of Cooks Cooks wines, actually, uh, I oh. seem to recall. Yeah, um, yeah, and and um, this, the, in Australia, you, the only way that you really got to see those wines, well, we were lucky, again, with the, through this whole Lindemann organisation. It's quite a big company, a lot of winemakers. And the Melbourne Wine Show was a really important event. So all of the winemakers were taken to the wine tasting. So we got to taste all the wines after the, after the show results were out so we could you know, see what was going on. Mm. But the, the company who uh, distributed Lindemann's in Australia at that time uh, was also a wine importer. So they would always put on a, a big, really good dinner for the winemaking team the night before the Melbourne Wine Show. Right, okay. So that we got to try a lot of really good wines. I mean, and, I, the, and so that included imported? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and to, yeah. I, I, I remember two of those that I went to with them and one we had, we had 10 vintages of what, what was, was called Shadow Baron Philippe, which is... Shadow to Armagnac now it's a different so it's a fifth growth Bordeaux so you know Cabernet Merlot type mm. wine mm. and we and in that in those ten wines and we and they were tasted blind we didn't know what they were even though they all came from the same producer we had wines going back to 1919 in that quite fascinating and then the next year we did uh, the same sort of thing ten vintages of Shadow Margot uh, which is a Grand Cru, yes. like a first growth Bordeaux, fantastic yeah. wines. Yeah. So, the, you know, we did get exposed oh, yeah. to yeah. some degree mm. to them, but not. And I found it fascinating when I came to New Zealand where we could go, you had to go to the wholesaler in those days because a bottle shop where they sold, where you could buy single bottle wines, a wholesaler, you had to buy a nine litre without a wholesaler in those days. Okay. I mean, we had very primitive, New Zealand had very primitive liquor laws yes, yeah, back yes, then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you wanted to buy imported wine, you had to buy it from a wholesaler because bottle shops could only sell New Zealand wine. So okay. single bottle sales in those days were only New Zealand wine. I'm right. not sure exactly when that changed. Well, yeah. It was sort of the early 1980s, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had to be pretty committed to yeah, wanting to try. Well, you know, you could wine. buy beer as well. and or even No, beer. but if you wanted to buy imported wine, then yeah. you had to be pretty committed well, to Well, say that. you could buy beer as well to make up that nine litres. Oh, I gotcha. Oh, right, okay, wine. just a nine litre. Nine litres of alcohol. Minimum purchase of yeah, volume. Yeah, <laughs> it's a different system. But there was a big range of very good uh, imported wines at that stage. Mm. So, And quite a lot, a lot of nice little importers who was in, in the days of import quotas and stuff like that, you mm. know. Mm. Uh, mm. where people had 
they bought a quota, I guess, yeah, like fishing. License. Yeah, yeah, a lot, mm. yeah. Mm. So there was a number of them who, you know, a lot of them in South Island, including Wilson Neal, of course, which is Sam Neal's family. Okay, mm. Mm. Sam Neal, the actor. Yeah, mm. Mm. yeah, and wine producer, and as wine well. producer. Yeah, two paddocks. Yeah. I think. So yeah, we did have access to. We were able to access imported, good quality imported wines much more readily than you could in Australia. Mm. And that's you know that's been great for me and and you know one of the things you know this whole thing where where Jim used to buy these wines I could recall a particular wine that was very sort of formative or very influential in my formative years of and particularly Chardonnay which I became very well known for yeah uh, Chardonnay because of the well not only the wines we made at delegates but more particularly the black label Chardonnays from Morton Estate when I went to Morton Estate. And they were inspired really by a wine that came out of this whole Jim Delegate thing. Um, and nine, I remember it precisely. It was 1979, Louis Latour, Cordon Charlemagne. So a Grand Cru Burgundy made out of Chardonnay. Mm, mm. And that sort of blew my mind. Cause so I Chablis? No, no. It's Cordon, it's Cordon Charlemagne is sort of further south. Oh, it's okay. An, it's not too far from, you know, where the, the great... Burgundies come from, and Cordon Charlemagne is a Grand Cru, right? So like uh, Le Mans Rocher or or whatever, you know, okay. not too far from there. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So yeah, that's no, so obviously quite influential. If you can remember, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, so I remember that precisely. that wine. Says, wow. Shit, you know, this is what Chardonnay is. This yeah. is Chardonnay. It's fantastic. Yeah, you know, barrel fermented and all the rest of it. And then, so um, sorry, would that have been? Um, would you've had much Chardonnay before then at all? Not really. No. I'd never seen Chardonnay in Australia. I mean, in terms of grapes, oh, never seen wow. Chardonnay in Australia. Wow. It didn't really exist then. Yeah, or in very small you know, volumes in a couple of pockets. But yeah. no. So, so uh, <laughs> my sort of introduction to Chardonnay was really at Delegates, and mm. that was uh, we bought. Uh, for, no, that was 1981, 1982. We bought grapes from Dennis Irwin from Matafiro in in Gisborne okay. and Chardonnay from them. We managed to in the to 1981 we picked up gold medals for for Chardonnay. Mm. Then 1982 we won wine of the show with the 1982. So was that was that um, was Chardonnay quite young to New Zealand? Yeah, then absolutely. As well? okay. There was very yeah. not that much of it around. Right. Cooks. McWilliams were the main guys making it in, in any sort of volume then. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, not much of it at all. And even Sauvignon was only just sort of starting to come uh, along. Mm-hmm. And Chardonnay came out probably a few years before Sauvignon did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, mm. so um, Jim then sent me on a – it was a 10-week trip through Europe. Wow. Uh, which was fantastic. Mm. I mean, it was a mm. – was a long time away, mm. but uh, it was, and I was lucky enough to be there. Well, I had introductions to a lot of those really fine wine producers. I really spent most of the time in France, a right. bit of time in Germany, yep. and a little bit of time in Italy. Yeah, okay. Uh, France was fascinating. Germany I loved, and Italy I didn't really see enough of that. But, but uh, we were there during harvest. So there's downsides to that. Of course, everybody's pretty busy and they don't really want to see you. No, um, no. But I, you know, I had great trips through there. People did were absolutely terrific. If you had an appointment and then you confirmed the appointment and you turned up on time, they loved you to pieces. If you didn't have an appointment, they don't want to know you. No, 
No. So yeah. I learned a lot from that. Actually, mm. that was that's just a good philosophy, mm. Mm. and mm. and how not to be rude to people. That's really useful. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> always a good thing. Turning to up expecting the world, you're yeah. not going to get it. No, no. They'll just say politely. Yeah, they're busy. Bugger off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In yeah. French. Yeah, yeah. So I, I happened to be at Louis Latour's, who made the the, the court on Charlemagne that I was talking about. Oh, before. okay, yes. And they were processing Chardonnay while I was there, and they were going, you know, hand-picked fruit for starters. We didn't really use hand-picked fruit that much. Uh, certainly in New Zealand, it's mainly machine harvested. Oh, already? Okay. Yeah, yeah even yeah, then. Yeah. yeah. So they uh, were putting the grapes straight into the press and then pressing the juice out, and the juice was going straight into barrels. And I'm thinking, this is weird. This is not how we make wine in our part of the world because it was a much more technical, technically made wine. We had you know, centrifuges and filters and all that sort of stuff to the juice before it ever went to fermentation. Mm. Um, whereas there they just went straight into barrels and, and they didn't add yeast or anything to it. The mm. things just fermented on their own. That was very new to us as mm. well. Mm. Uh, I, I suppose our sort of technical winemaking that we'd learnt along the way at, at Roseworthy and then also working for these bigger companies is very, very technical winemaking, you know, interventionalist. You did everything to make it turn out right. Right, okay. So, and, and turn out right was... Um, Technically right. Yeah, and as expected. So yes. not a lot of variation from indeed, here. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. We, in fact, we worked very hard to, to try and, particularly in Australia, to make the wines look the same from yeah. year to year. So the consumer knew what they were going to get. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, whereas, you know, what I saw in France is that... This is how she's going to be, mate. Yeah, you know? th- this year is like this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And they didn't they didn't mess with them too much. Mm. Uh, so I then went back to to delegates and we started playing around with a version of what I saw in France with regard to Chardonnay. So I'd sort of taken the first small step and not clarifying the juice prior fermentation. Mm-hmm. We still fermented in stainless steel, mm. and then mm. the wines went into barrel after that. But, you know, what I'd seen in France, they were fermenting in barrel, mm. and mm. I thought that was really fascinating. So when I, I left delegates um, uh, prior to the 1982, uh, sorry, 1983 harvest, I shifted to Morton Estate yep. in 1982, latter part of 1982, and that was a new winery. So we built the winery and all the rest of it, and... Uh, so I, you know, I've been involved with building three wineries now, which is so. Where, where was Morton Estate? At, at Morton Estate is in the Bay of Plenty. Bay of Plenty. So just north of Tauranga, Caddy uh, Caddy. Okay, around there. Yeah. Um, and it was that was an interesting story too, because um, the guy who started Morton Estate is a guy called Morton Brown, who'd been a used car dealer in Wellington, made quite a lot of money, and then got involved with uh, development of kiwi fruit properties. So this was this whole period mm. when Muldoon was in with the you know uh, very high rates of personal tax mm-hmm. and they had this thing where you could I've forgotten what they called it now but you could do developments and then write off all the development costs against your your income yeah right, right. so you save a lot of tax you know that was yeah. tax avoidance yeah yeah if that's the right word. <laughs> well, you're allowed avoidance, not evasions. Yeah, that's right. Yes. So avoidance is a good word. <laughs> is okay. Yeah. 
So he, he did that for quite a while and, and was propagating avocado trees and stuff like that uh, to sort of keep himself going while his, while his vineyards came into production. So mm. he, what happened was he... He'd so sorry, so you, 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 because he, he, you know, still today, Kitty Kitty's known for kiwi fruit, yeah, not so much for very wine. Much a, well, not at all now. But, but he, he did have his vineyards there. It wasn't because just Because he was doing, he was involved with these developments of, of kiwi fruit orchards. Mm. He decided that there was too much kiwi fruit being planted in around that or in the Bay of Plenty, so he said, "Oh well, I'm going to." He he ended up with a, I think it must have been a hundred acre property, which he sold fifty of and paid for the other fifty with that. Mm. And he said, "What am I going to do?" He said, "I don't want to plant kiwi fruit because there's too many, and I'm going to plant some grapes." <laughs> you know, it was you know an interesting thing to do yeah. uh, in the Bay of Plenty because yeah. the Bay of Plenty's never really been a grape growing area. No, no. So no. he um, he planted I don't know twenty. 25 acres or something of, of vineyard there and we built the winery and we um, we then accessed fruit from Gisborne originally and then two years later, that was 1983, two years later we started taking fruit out of Hawke's Bay so that sort of gave me my whole interest in Hawke's Bay really, the fruit for what we wanted to do, so much better out of Hawke's Bay than, Marlborough, uh, than, than Gisborne. Than Gisborne and so was that at the time then when Hawke's Bay was starting to grow as a wine Yes it was, region? yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, with the first grapes we took were, in fact, 1984. So the first of these, what became very influential and quite famous wines for Morton Estate was this black label Chardonnay, which is a barrel fermented Chardonnay. So that we've had this discussion with a few people and probably the only other person that may have been doing barrel fermentation of Chardonnay uh, prior to that time, which was 1984, was maybe 1983, was Paul Mooney at the Mission. Okay. Yeah. Which so is we've had Hawks this Bay, discussion yeah. a few times, but we sort of developed. We were the first, to, or Morton Estate was the first to really uh, commercialise barrel fermentation mm. of Chardonnay. So that was for you another step down the or, uh, more closer the path to the way that they were seen. making wines in Burgundy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And was that hard for you to introduce? Did Did you get a bit of resistance <laughs> from others going? Well, don't yeah. Know about we, this? We, the first um, vintage we made, I think it was twenty barrels. And, and it was all new oak. And oak was quite expensive too, so that was a thing. So I remember... So um, imported French oak. Yeah, mm. yeah, well, mm. high quality, very mm. good very good oak, whereas there had been oak used in New Zealand uh, prior to that, but it was mainly American oak and yeah. not particularly good quality. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. And anyway, I remember taking a glass of this wine to Morton and saying, you know, what do you think of this? And thinking, you know, if you don't like it, and there's quite a lot for us to drink, <laughs> but he loved it. And right, once, good. as soon as we bottled that wine, um, we just got a great response to it, and it sort of made made Morton Estate really that particular wine. So, how long would it have been in the in the oak? That was oak? it. Would have, it was twelve months. Twelve months. I mean, okay. it's sort of standard in those days was about twelve months, mm. and. Um, a hundred percent new oak, so it was very oaky. Yeah, yeah. And and but that's what people thought Chardonnay tasted like. Yeah, well, that's what they were the introduced of, to, I suppose. The, yeah, 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 well, that yeah. that wine did introduce people a lot. And some of the other Chardonnays that were made in New Zealand around that time were really oaky as well, but not fermented in barrel. They were fermented in stainless steel and then filtered and all the rest of it and put into barrel. Right. Okay. And the oak never integrates. So mm. this, this barrel fermentation thing that we did was the first where you got the oak, even though it was a very obvious oak, uh, integrated quite well into the wine as well. And, and so new oak each vintage would be new. It was. Mm. And mm. so the, the um, one-year-old oak 
that had been used one time, we would go down to the next level of, of Chardonnay that we had. Oh, well. okay. So mm. probably mm. tasted quite oaky as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, uh, so then over the period of time, I suppose, we started to um, – and that was actually made for machine-harvested fruit too. Mm. And then we started using hand-harvested fruit. Gently pressing it and all, and then started using um, uninoculated ferments, not adding yeast as well. So it was a sort of a gradual process. And, and the and the the grapes were from Hawkes Bay at this stage, or Gisborne Hawkes, Hawkes Bay. Bay. Okay. And so, were you making anything from the? Um, yeah, we had there was local. I remember. I'm just trying to think what was planted there. I know there was there was Cabernet Sauvignon planted. <sighs> not Chardonnay. Can't remember what the other white varieties. We had Cabernet Sauvignon and and probably Muller Turgal. Right. Okay. No. It's a no reds. Yes. Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh, sorry. 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 Yeah. Sorry. yeah so it's Cabernet Sauvignon. Sauvignon the actually the first vintage we made from that was the first the first year the first year that we we made wine at Morton we made Cabernet Sauvignon from that and eighty eighty three which was the first vintage was an exceptionally good year you know you plonk that up we were with nineteen ninety eight. And maybe 2013. So, from, on, so, so from the from the um, Bay of Plenty. Yeah, yeah. Right. So yeah, we, we made only two vintages, I think, from there. Yeah. Um, and then 1986 was the disastrous time for the wine industry in New Zealand. It was when delegates and Villa Maria both went into receivership, mm. uh, and things. The industry was really struggling at that stage because we had no, there was no uh, export. Of New Zealand wine, really, at that time. So, New mm. Zealand local market was the only market for these wines, and right. as production started to get bigger, yeah, and we couldn't sell it. No, no. Oversupply. So it's been really since nineteen, probably since the mid nineteen eighties, really, where there's been any uh, any export of uh, wine from New Zealand of any sort of volume and any quality. And and so. D- did that come about because of that oversupply? Did yeah. the, the, the wine industry went, well, hang on a minute, we, we need and to actually create, get, what we'll, happened? You know, get into export? Well, yes, that's part of it. But first mm. what happened, and it was by the big company in Montana and so on, who, and Cooks, Corbins, really lobbied the government hard for some, some help yeah. out, of this, out of the crap that they'd got themselves into. Yeah. And the government, uh, in their wisdom, then um, paid for growers to pull grapes out. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, right. so that's what happened at Morton, right. too. So, um, uh, they pulled the vineyards out at Morton right, in nineteen eighty six. Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. And then all from then on, all of the all of the fruit. Well, apart from one little vineyard at the winery, uh, all of the fruit for Morton came from Hawkes Bay. Right. Okay. Until later okay. on, and then Marlborough got involved in all the rest of it. But initially, right. mm. Hawkes Bay. Uh, was the home, and then, and at Morton, then we planted vineyards in quite substantial vineyards in Hawkes Bay. Right. Okay. So that that was the end of of growing in the in the Bay Plenty. Yeah. 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 Well, it took advantage really. Of, yeah. It was probably it was good, more about yeah. cash. <laughs> yeah. You needed the cash. Yeah. As much at that stage of the development you, of the winery. Did you also sort of see that it wasn't going to be a great place to try and no, grow? No. The, in fact. It was okay. It was okay. Mm. The particular mm. site that he had was, you know, quite slopey. Right. Uh, the so soils weren't, good they weren't heavy, mm. Uh, mm. and it worked quite well. Mm. But no one's really gone back there, have they? There's been virtually nothing. No. Oh. Mm. Mm. Well, you know, they'd have to fight with kiwi fruit now. Yeah, that, yeah, and, yeah. And, and yeah. I see, you know, the other day, I see that uh, the amount of money, I think it was $5 billion, something like $5 billion export for kiwi fruit. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, wine's patting itself on the back at 1.6. Mm, mm. So the kiwi fruit industry is far uh, bigger mm. in terms of uh, export returns than, mm. the, than the wine industry is. Mm, mm, mm. So then, mm. uh, you know, I'd sort of been at the. Oh, actually, what happened? I, you know, I always said, as I said before, wanted to thought that I wanted to do my own winery thing. I was in London doing some uh, promotional stuff with Morton in 1987, and uh, I did a trade and press tasting at a restaurant in London called The Bleeding Heart, which was owned by a Kiwi lady and a, and a Scottish guy, mm-hmm. husband and wife team. Mm-hmm. And she was a great supporter of New Zealand wine, even in those days, very early days of New Zealand wine. Um, she she come back to New Zealand uh, every every summer holidays, mm. and uh, you know she obviously knew what was happening with wines around the place, and they organised to take them back. But anyway, so she I could, so they would actually import them independently back to and, and no, they were, were still been working through importers right. at that stage. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So there was some. Export, but it was very a small low. Amount. People like mm. Harvey's of Bristol, very famous shippers. Okay. Um, were he, in fact, um, I've forgotten his name now, but he who died not that long ago was one of the first guys from, from uh, not Harvey's of Bristol, but, uh, someone in Bristol, I'll, we'll remember later. Um, he was the first guy really to import New Zealand wine. Mm. Uh, into the UK. Okay. Right. Uh, anyway, we, after we had this lunch with the trade and press and they'd gone, I sat down with the owners of the Bleeding Heart and um, we'd had a few glasses of wine and, and the upshot of that was that they said when I left, uh, look, uh, we'd like to invest in the New Zealand wine industry. If you want to do something with us, you know, sing out, let us know. So I sort of hunted around for for land and we sort of talked about what we might like to do like we had really intended to make international quality uh red wine so that was the whole that was really the whole premise that we sort of talked about at the start that was part one of our chat with john hancock so be sure to check in very shortly for part two and check us out online if you're wanting to listen to any of the other new zealand wine podcasts thanks for listening in Hey, corner my, bye for now.